of What's the Tease. Today my guest is Dustin Wax. He is the executive director at Burlesque Hall of Fame Museum. Yes, that's right, the one and only Behoff. Welcome to What's the Tease, Dustin. Oh, thanks for having me. How are you and the museum doing uh, during this time? <laughs> well, <laughs> um, we uh, we... You know, we had to close down back in March um, and spent a f- couple of months scrambling for funding and try to figure out sort of how we can pursue our mission to preserve and share this history and this art form uh, without having a physical location people could go to. And, and so we work on a lot of that stuff. Um, and we reopened for two weeks. <laughs> And uh, we got, uh, uh, you know, when we reopened cases in Las Vegas were 150 new cases a day. And by the end of those two weeks, they were up to 600 new cases a day on average. Um, and, it, we, you know, Las Vegas is now a hotspot. So we decided it'd be best for us to be closed uh, and just continue to work on developing online programming and online outreach and things that we can do to reach, you know, a broader audience. We, you know, one, the positive and the limitation of a brick and mortar place is that people have to come there, Mm -hmm. uh, which means that we can provide a much richer experience. But it also means that unless you're here in Las Vegas, you can't access any of the experience. And so we've been really focusing on how to reach out and make at least some of that experience more available to more people. Uh, and and as for the funding, you know, we've we've sort of put ourselves in a place where at least we have the breathing space to figure this all out. Uh, it was it was pretty scary for a while, yeah. because you know, with no traffic and no admission and no gift store sales yes. and uh, and being pretty sure that we were going to have to cancel the weekender, uh, that's at least half of our revenue for the year. And and we operate very close to what our revenue is. So. Uh, so we were looking at really running out of money and between fundraising and, and some federal aid and some grants, we've, we've at least given ourselves some headroom to kind of figure out, okay, what do we do? How do we continue to generate revenue if, if maybe we're going to be, you know, in this pandemic world for even if we're open, you know, we're still going to have limited tourism. We're still going to have limited visitation. And that could be for another year it could be longer like we have no idea so so that's what we're really focusing on now is like i said trying to sort of make the museum something that is still a physical location but transcends that in some way Um, what is the significance of the burlesque hall of fame as an organization and as a museum the burlesque hall of fame is the world's only public collection of burlesque material and burlesque historical material uh, there are a couple other collections, but they're research collections. We run a museum. We, we, as I've said before, we, you know, we're here to share this history with the world and and the history and and the present to inspire new burlesque and new creation. Uh, so there, you know, there's sort of two aspects of what we do. We have the museum, uh, which focuses on the sort of history to present, and then the the Behoff Weekender every year, which focuses on some of the history i mean we bring several dozen 
uh, performers from the 40s to the 70s out to Las Vegas to perform on our stage um, and to interact and teach classes and sort of hang out with, with burlesque people. Uh, but we also, you know, we're in the Miss Exotic World competition um, mm -hmm. and the Movers, Shakers and Innovators Showcase, where we're really promoting the best of what's going on in the burlesque world right now and hopefully inspiring a new performers to take up burlesque, but also inspiring established performers with, you know, the sort of highest level of performance uh, so that they can uh, learn and be inspired by other performers. Uh, as a museum, we really, you know, have been, you know, we're, we're a museum, you know, yeah. you walk in and, and we do a tour, we try to make it very personal uh, and very, uh, you know, everyone is sort of walked through the exhibition and told the stories because burlesque is, I mean, it is obviously a visual art form, but the, the history of burlesque is a, a history of people whose stories weren't often recorded. Uh, and so it's really important for us to to try and bring life to, you know, it's not just Gypsy Rose Lee burlesque performer in 1928 to 1970, yes. you know, or it's, <laughs> it's, you know, what are the stories, what are the things that happened in their lives that are, uh, that are sort of these, well, like I said, it's the stories, you know, so mm -hmm. we're telling stories, we're telling, talking about plots and themes that have to do with being women working in a marginalized uh, field being women who are already marginalized, working in a marginalized profession, uh, in many cases dealing many cases dealing with ethnic minorities mm -hmm. who are excluded or included in in various ways over the course of that history, uh, talking about um, sexuality and uh, trans people who. Mm -hmm you know, who were either very publicly uh, trans people or or, um, or maybe secretly that, you know, nobody ever really knew um, and trying to tell their stories in a way that really respects the, the lives of people that are sometimes doubly, triply, quadruply marginalized in yeah. society um, and that society and history generally don't pay a lot of attention to. The collection was started by Jenny Lee, right? in mm -hmm. 1965 how did she come across like getting some of those artifacts from say the early 1920s and some of those stories and how does does the organization today sort of find those stories you know how do you how do you get access to them you know i like to tell people we're a young museum with a really deep history <laughs> uh jenny lee started the collection in the 60s but a, a decade before that she started the exotic dancers league she started this uh uh segment of the american guild for variety artists which was the union that uh that burlesque dancers belonged to uh but they weren't really paying a lot of attention to the needs of burlesque dancers um they were something like 80 percent of their membership uh in the 50s and 60s but they weren't really doing anything for them so she started this to kind of agitate for greater uh greater rights and you know labor protections for exact dancers mm -hmm. and so she had already started you know in the 50s having their annual meetings uh and building memberships so so building relationships with all these performers so in 1965 when she put the call out to you know when you come to our annual meeting this year bring your photos and, and artifacts and let's start a burlesque call of fame yeah. she already had connections with a, a great number of people in the field 
Um, and so that's how she was able to sort of start. And then she displayed this stuff for a long time in her in her bar, the Sassy Lassie, yeah. uh, out near L.A., uh, in San Pedro. Uh, and just kept building that collection over over the next 20 odd years as she you know continued to increase her her connections with people in the field when she passed away uh, in 1990 uh, and dixie evans took over yeah. the museum of course dixie was also a mid-century performer who uh had also a lot of friends in in the field and uh, and really made an effort to reach out to people that she had lost touch with or that she didn't know but someone else knew uh, and bring them sort of into the fold. And so they, they started bringing their stuff out to the ranch uh, in the museum. So the collection kept growing through all of that. And of course, mm -hmm. uh, this was happening at the same time that the internet was, was developing and becoming popular as, as eBay was developing and becoming popular. So Dixie would, you know, shop yeah, for stuff on eBay. Yeah, because now we're in the 90s. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, in the early aughts, and so she and she's going to auctions, and, and you know a lot of these people she's built relationships with family members from Sally Rand, Gypsy Rose Lee, and so on, and, and Liz Renee. And so when Liz Renee passes, she you know we get a big chunk of her estate, um, we get stuff from Gypsy Rose Lee's estate, and so on. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So by the time the museum moves out to las vegas there's already a pretty significant collection and of course for dixie and jenny both they were able to tell stories from their own memory because people had told them directly yeah um when i came aboard in, in 2010 and we became the director in 2011 um the collection was still really built around their relationships. I mean, mm -hmm. we'd expanded a little bit, but, but really it's their relationship. So it really focused on forties through seventies. Yeah. And we didn't have a lot of stuff from the 1920s and we didn't have a lot of stuff covering the, the, uh, neo burlesque uh, Renaissance in the nineties and, and aughts either. And so that's something that we've really focused on since then. And we do it in part in the same way. I mean, you know, every year at the weekender, a dozen people bring me stuff. Uh, I, very early on launched this flyer project to try and collect you know the artwork that people were making to promote their shows of course the internet has pretty much ended the flyer as well <laughs> uh, and so there aren't a lot of physical flyers and, and posters either but um but i've tried to to at least have some representation of of neo burlesque that way and, and we're reaching out to performers to try and you know bring some of that material into into the museum and of course that will as people move on with their careers, uh, uh, hopefully some more and more of that material will, will come to us over the years to come. Uh, and then we also follow auctions and follow eBay. And, uh, you know, we're, we now have a staff of, of uh, four people, five people, sorry. Um, and uh, we're all doing research all the time. We started an oral history project back in 2007 uh, that we continue. So we have a lot of recorded interviews with legends uh, and the person who runs the, the oral history project, um, uh, Be a Trouble, is now uh, trying to expand her work into uh, interviewing some of those neo-burlesque pioneers mm -hmm. from, the, from the 90s and, and early aughts. Uh, so, so we're constantly trying to get new material and, and seek out, you know, those stories. Uh, and luckily as time has gone by more and more, you know, historians and scholars have come out of the burlesque field. Mm -hmm. 
And so there are people doing research and finding material and, and writing and publishing material that deals with, for instance, uh, the, the, you know, black performers in the 1880s and 90s who, yeah. who started the Creole show, that that's a story that, you know, again, is doubly, triply marginal. And nobody would have thought at the time, oh, this is this is history in the making yeah. because they were women and because they were black people and because, you know, this was burlesque. And so, uh, but now people are going back and, and recovering that history. And we're trying to, as uh, you know, every day, basically in, integrate more and more knowledge into into what we can convey and find new ways to, to express it. The social relevance of burlesque is something that's always very interesting to me. I feel like when we said that earlier, um, people's cultural reference for it has always been the era of Mae West, um, mm -hmm. Betty Page, etc. But I feel like with the neo-burlesque movement, it's actually surpassed that in so many ways and crossed so many borders and boundaries in terms of what is evoked on stage and also how it's spread, how this concept has just spread across the world. You know, we've been seeing this and there are people that uh, in the neo-burlesque world that have developed that kind of respect, you know, Dirty Martini and Julialis Muse, they do, uh, they, they are connected to fashion designers and the theater world and the performing arts uh, in general in ways that open those doors for, for more and more uh, involvement. And that's something that we're really starting to try to integrate. As I said, we don't have a lot of neo-burlesque material other than we have a lot of photos of Miss Exotic World competitions, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but we've been really sort of actively trying to expand that so that we can cover uh, these the the relevance of this in the modern world and and that this is an art form that maybe i don't know worldwide maybe 25 50,000 practitioners um that are performing in local communities you know uh, mm -hmm. fairly regularly on any given time there's got to be thousand shows going on yeah. and not now obviously but in in normal times and that this is a, a big part, you know, just like live music is a big part of, of people's artistic uh, exposure, you know, mm -hmm. burlesque is becoming a really big part of it. And that's something that we're really trying to cover. And we've integrated, we, we launched an exhibition last year that uh, really brings some of these issues out, like the body positivity and intersectionality and, and um, the ways that burlesque uh, empowers people uh, and and we're now working on on another exhibition that will will really focus on neo burlesque and the way neo burlesque um, has has developed can you talk me through the process of induction for um, honorary members you know every year we kind of bat around this idea of whether we want to start doing inductions and to me i don't feel that that's a necessary mm -hmm. recognition uh, in a field like ours where we don't have, you know, baseball hall of fame, people have stats. It's, yes. you know, pretty clear who is great yes. performers and the rock and roll hall of fame, people have gold records and, and bestsellers, yes. you know, number one hits and so on. And there's a quantified reality that, that clearly distinguishes performers. Whereas burlesque is an art form that responds to, you know, day-to-day -day events. It responds to, uh, power relations in society it responds to stereotypes and 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 
images that are forced onto mostly women performer, but uh, performers of different races and performers of different body types and different ages and so on. And and it's hard to rank your art in that way. Yes. Um, and so we've, we're much more of the sort of, you know, an uh, art and history museums combined where we're really looking for what is the historical significance and what is the uh, what is the artistic significance and who really is influencing people who really is really is standing out as the basis of the the you know what they've given to the field and in in that sort of model we cast our net pretty widely because you have uh, a master's in philosophy in cultural anthropology have you come across any research that shows like what was happening socially you know sort of maybe encouraged it to come out of the woodworks again in the 90s because of course burlesque existing in mid-century in in the 1950s in america anywhere in the world with you know the limitations on women's rights and their role in society as well it was like completely revolutionary then and i feel like still today it's revolutionary yeah, and I think Michelle Baldwin's book, and I, I don't recall the exact title, but her book on the neo-burlesque really captures the feel of what it was like for mostly women in the 90s uh, to be kind of fumbling around for some kind of way to express certain things uh, and and sort of landing on burlesque, landing on this kind of old-timey art form that you know before youtube and before widespread dvds and so on they they had never seen uh but but through pictures and and stories and i think that that uh uh is is a really good picture of that but um but there is no the the you know it's something that i've had to piece together um all of all of the answers to those things because mm -hmm. there there's never been a great you know, uh, soup to nuts history of burlesque. There's never been uh, a comprehensive sort of uh, history that has has really looked at all that stuff. Um, but we do have this great collection. We have a lot of material, and you know, I think there's a lot of forces involved. And when you talk about how burlesque passed out of popular, you know, is a is this incredibly popular art form, and then 20 years later, it was it was it was a nostalgia you know, just an, an item to, to think about the quaint past and no mm -hmm. longer uh, really active developing art form. Um, and, and there's two things that are happening. There's an economic thing, which is, you know, burlesque goes from theaters into nightclubs, into bars. Gypsy Rose is playing with, with orchestras and then and then you're playing with combos and then you're playing <laughs> with, you know, a drummer and a bass player and then yeah. a drummer and then recorded music. And that's, the people who are profiting from this, the, the owners of these venues looking to, to cut back and, and they don't want the 20 minute playlet that is a, you know, a mid-century or, or 1930s, 1940s burlesque act. They want 
the the money shot right they want yeah. eventually by the 70s they want you to come out there and be naked yeah uh, or at least as close to naked as possible and that changes and transforms the art and when we talk to the legends you know the all of them that were performing at that time they saw that as a real real de-skilling of what they do that they were no longer uh expected or even allowed to to have acts that they were expected to come out with a robe or duster on and then drop it and be nude like how quickly can you get to naked and not so much exactly. emphasis on the costume your story and all the other elements that we right. know today yeah and then and then from that you know we have a whole new kind of strip club performance that evolves that's about athleticism and you know there's a whole nother sort of skill set that develops in in strip clubs but it's 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 no longer the burlesque that we're really talking about the sort of comic theatric performance style mm -hmm. and so that's the economic factor and then and then the cultural factor is burlesque sort of undoes itself you know as burlesque opens the doors and pushes these envelopes for for sort of ever more raunchy sexual performance the rest of the culture is going through those doors too and so by the by the 60s and, and 70s you have you know you turn on tv and there's gidget right good old wholesome gidget what is a gidget on tv <laughs> gidget is a, a tv show it's a sally fields uh tv show this uh -huh. very wholesome sort of sitcom you know late 60s entertainment yeah. and it's set on you know on the beach basically and she's running around in her bikini and making eyes at boys and you know comedy ensues okay, so and like that becomes a new sexual norm and yeah you can you can turn on the tv and see someone in a bikini and in a lot of states you couldn't wear that little on stage as a burlesque performer yeah you can go to a go-go club and there's topless women dancing you can go to by the early 70s you can go to mainstream movie theaters and see deep throat behind the green door you know mm -hmm. see hardcore pornographic films in public essentially yeah. and and all of a sudden the idea that you know in your state women may have to be covered from the middle of their thigh to their hip bone um, and from the bottom of the breast to the top, all of a sudden that starts to seem really quaint and old fashioned yeah. and, and not that thrilling, you know, that sort of the cultural taste moves on towards something that's more about the erotic side of it. And well, I don't even say the erotic side, but the, uh, the sexual side yes. of it, rather than that, that act of seduction, that act of the slow tease and the buildup. Yeah. And, you know, we slowly become a culture that's accustomed to quicker entertainments. The fast food uh, version of of the art form. Really. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and then what happens in the 90s is, you know, there's also a political aspect of the rise of feminism and, you know, the rise of feminism largely as uh, a bunch of people that want to shut down the burlesque clubs because they see them as exploitative of women. Mm -hmm. And then their children and particularly their daughters growing up in that, in this world where women had much broader expectations for what they could get out of life. Yeah. Um, and then the sort of third wave feminism coming on and, and really opening up and saying, you know, we have sexual positivity and we have to take into account you know, not just the, the experience of middle-class white women, but, but all these other groups of, of people. All that happens right when that, 
you know, right in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. And all this whole generation of people sort of hits the world. And it's a world where the, the expectations for women have changed and there's no real template. And we have this explosion of different kinds of art forms. We have the Riot Girl movement and punk rock. We have the Rockabilly revival. We have the Roller Derby revival. We have the Burlesque revival. We have the Swing Dance revival. You know, we have yes. all these kinds of uh, mining of history for different ways to position yourself in the society. And I think Burlesque is, is one of those things that becomes popular because burlesque performers were marginalized because they were women who made lives and careers for themselves in a world that that didn't want to accept anything about them yeah right that didn't want to accept their sexuality they didn't want to accept their i mean they wanted to profit off of it and they wanted to be you know entertained by it but yes. they didn't accept the women themselves and they didn't accept that they could have uh, control over how they were presented. They couldn't. Yeah, there was no agency. <clears throat> right, and so and and you know, here's a generation of women who says, well, here's here's all these women in the past who were under much greater restrictions and and were expressing agency and were um, were able to build lives and travel the world. You know, we talked to some of these legends and they they worked in the Middle East and they worked in Japan and they worked yeah. in uh, Australia and they worked in Europe and they worked in South America and, and Mexico and so on. And, you know, farm girl from Iowa, <laughs> some poor, you know, city girl who, you know, in the 50s and 60s was told, there's no future for you. There's nothing for you to do out there. So what for you to do is find a guy, get married, start squeezing out kids and hope mm -hmm. he doesn't beat you and instead they were able to you know to to make two thousand dollars a week and travel the world and like that that seemed like a model that women could get behind um in and a lot of people could get behind i think in the in the 90s and and uh and it, you see you know as burlesque has grown and developed it's really been a, a feedback loop with how uh, feminist notions and and uh, and increasingly anti-racist notions and uh, queer studies and you know all these sort of other academic fields that establish themselves parallel to to burlesque emerging re-emerging as as a popular uh, performance art form and has fed off of that and I think there's burlesque m a lot more than maybe uh, rockabilly or roller derby yeah. uh, has has kept that political edge to it. I mean, not everyone sees it as political. Not everyone, for a lot of people, it is just a fun cosplay or whatever. Yeah. But but I think there's a lot of people that really see this as a way of expressing themselves and expressing themselves in a world that's still not super friendly to women's self-expression. Like this revival, I'm sort of wondering when that name will change because it's no longer, I believe, it's almost like the word revival is being left in the dust a little bit now because it has so much momentum and life because of all these elements and the different you know, things that people are bringing to the table and the different ways that it's uh, challenging and exists within society today. Like, what do you think um, the future of uh, burlesque will be? You know, it's interesting, Tigger, who is, you know, one of these pioneers of neo-burlesque in the 90s, never 
calls it the burlesque revival. He always calls it the burlesque renaissance, you know, that it was a rebirth. And that implies that it takes a different form. And, and it does, you know, there's a, in a lot of ways. And I think most notably, it's not, uh, you know, burlesque in the 50s and 60s was a profession. It was a job that you had, you went somewhere and you got hired and you worked your way up and, you know, it was, it was how you made your living. And today for the vast majority of, of people, and there are people that make a living from it, but there's quite a lot more. This is a they may get paid for it. So they may be technically professionals, but they do it out of love. They do it out of uh, a, a need for a form of art that expresses something to the world. Mm-hmm. And, and that's maybe a lot different from, uh, from, from the sort of classic burlesque era. Uh, and I think that that's an interesting way of, of thinking about it, that it is something that's constantly sort of re- reborn. Um, historically, uh, something that, that, we talk about when we give our tours, you know, all the way back to Lydia Thompson, who is brings burlesque to America in the 1860s. By the 1880s, she's like, burlesque is over, burlesque is dead. And every 10 years, you know, we have examples of people saying burlesque is over, burlesque yeah. is dead. And something new always develops because burlesque is an art form that responds to the world around it um, and comments on it. And so, you know, it's still doing that. It's responding to the world around it. And right now, yeah, there's huge challenges to the pandemic that's reshaping this into an art form that people are doing in their homes or doing in, you know, without an audience. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's the same and it may not be as as good, but they are still using it to to confront and challenge the, the world that we live in. And I think also notably the the Black Lives Matter movement. We've had Black Lives Matter movement for a while, um, and we've had you know anti-racist movements obviously for for mm-hmm. quite a long time, but uh, but this year, um, maybe because it came in con in in you know in concert with the pandemic, it's really forcing people to challenge themselves in a way that that they really haven't before, and to uh, for producers to really talk about and think about what kind of casting are, are we doing how are we addressing the political realities of the world we live in and it's of course something that a burlesque hall of fame has had to to deal with as well and and really start thinking about or or start thinking more deeply about issues of representation and voice and and transparency and so on and all that all of that i think is going to be an influence as burlesque moves forward i you know it's hard to say and because I spend a lot of my time looking at burlesque of the past, yeah. uh, I don't know if I'm the the best qualified to say this is what's hipping now. But um, but to look into the future, I think you're just going to see this art form continue to absorb the things around it and and feed them back in new ways. And so as we have new political realities, you know, th- there's been just earth-shaking political shifts in the world over the last five years Mm -hmm. and those aren't going to go away because trump gets voted out of office or because the pandemic goes away you know those are things that are going to continue to 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 reverberate Mm -hmm. uh with climate change and with uh with racial issues and with gun violence and with violence against women and with you know we have all these new economies that are becoming more and more a part of the global economy yeah and they have 
you know, middle classes and, and elite classes that are starting to be in more and more in touch with the rest of the world. And so the world's going to get more closely knit. And these ideas of burlesque, just like hip hop or rock and roll music or whatever, are going to start seeping into those societies as well. Yeah. And they're going to take them and transform them. We've already seen it. We've seen Australia and New Zealand and we've seen Japan and we've seen, you know, Italy and Russia and, uh, and uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina and, you know, all these places where there probably wasn't, there wasn't a historic, you know, 1920s burlesque world, <laughs> but they've, they've been influenced by the, the neo burlesque and, adapted it to the realities that they live in to express the things that that are important to them and i think that's what we're going to continue to see that's the future is we're going to see more and more societies where women start facing the same kinds of ways of thinking of themselves and looking for ways to express themselves just like happened here uh in the 90s and and odds and still happens here you know there's still 45 year old women who who you know somehow end up at a show and go oh my god here's this thing i've been looking for and come to the museum and take classes or go to you know in other cities go to their you know their local teachers and their local schools Mm -hmm. and and become part of this art form so thank you dustin wax for joining us on what's the tease is there any way that we can support burlesque hall of fame um, now during this pandemic and also going forward sure I mean, the first and most obvious thing is, is this year we did not have a burlesque Hall of Fame weekender uh, in the traditional sense uh, because of the pandemic. But we are doing an entire month of programming uh, through August of a virtual weekender. Uh, and that is available at the, the normal weekender site, which is BHOF weekend, B-H-O-F weekend.com. And we'll have showcases and all kinds of new stuff that we're inventing as we go along uh interviews uh and uh panel discussions and social hours and we're gonna have you know online parties and it's gonna be a a lot of fun and there's a lot of different ways to engage with that since it'll be going on throughout the month uh the museum is at burlesquecall.com and we do you know we do have membership and and we accept donations at the website uh and hopefully uh we you know, we've been doing a lot of online content. We're working on some online exhibitions. Uh, we've been putting videos out, uh, the, what we call our museum at home initiative to try and uh, bring what we do into people's house and, and homes. And people should certainly follow us on our website and follow us on Facebook uh, as well, uh, where we share an Instagram or, you know, any of those three, uh, where we share this, this content uh, on a regular basis. And our members also get some additional content. Uh, as well so all that information on burlesquecall.com awesome so that's been what's the tease with uh, the executive director dustin wax at the burlesque hall of fame museum out in las vegas